Well, unfortunately, I'll never forget the Sunday morning that I brought a non-Christian friend to church. (laughs) Some of you laugh because you know what that's like. It's kind of a nerve-wracking thing, bringing a non-Christian friend to church, because if you're not the pastor or the worship leader, you have very little control of what can happen up front. Am I right? Some of you are maybe feeling that pressure this morning, or you felt it before. And We certainly encourage you to bring non-Christian friends to church. We need to trust what the Lord is doing, and we want to create a safe space where they can ask questions and get to know more about God and Jesus Christ in a non-threatening environment. We hope to create a non-threatening environment here at Park Community Church, but I know that's not always the case. We don't do things perfectly by any means, and, and no does any, nor does any church. And so this one Sunday morning particularly, I had, been, I had built this relationship with one of my coworkers, a non-Christian coworker. Brittany and I had been married for about a year, and God had me in a place of work where I, we had together built this relationship with a non-Christian coworker. She was in her mid-40s and going through a divorce. And so Brittany and I, being married a year, you know, we just thought, hey, we'll counsel her on how to do marriage and how to get through not overcoming a divorce. And really, it wasn't that. God just put us in her life, and we had a heart for her. We cared for her. And as we built relationship with her, we, we tried to share with her the love of God. We tried to encourage her. We tried to talk through her relationship with her and give her whatever counsel that we could in our limited experience in marriage. And so we had been sharing Jesus' love with her and had invited her to church a handful of times. And finally, this one Sunday, she decided she was going to come with us. And so she came and her and her husband, they were currently, at the, at the moment, they were separated from each other and they were going through the proceedings of a divorce, but they were like, let's, let's give it another try. And so they brought their three kids with them to church that morning, sent their kids off to the kids' ministry, and then the four of us sat down for the service and Brittany and I are thinking, yes, this is, a, this is the chance that they're going to see the glory of God. They're going to hear the goodness of Jesus preached. They're going to see the church in action. And this will be a great step forward in their marriage being healed and them ultimately becoming followers of Jesus. And unfortunately, it was the Sunday that the pastor was talking about money. And, and, and in my perspective, in, in kind of wrestling through my own heart and journey on this, our perspective was he didn't do a great job of presenting God's picture of money and this glorious opportunity that we have as Christians to give. But it kind of felt more like, if you're a good Christian, you should give your money to the church. And Brittany and I are thinking, my coworker isn't a good Christian because she's not a Christian. And why would she give money to the church? I don't know, have any of you ever been there? Like, you've probably asked that question for yourself as the offering plate came by or you've been somewhere else or you've considered whether or not you should bring somebody to church and thought, are they going to hear a weird sermon or are they going to get the wrong impression or what what is our church culture going to communicate to them about Jesus, whether it's true or or not true? And so that was our experience that one morning. And I I remember, like, wrestling with God that I, I don't want to pastor and I don't want to preach sermons on giving because I don't want that to happen to non-believers. And so here I am pastoring, and here I am dealing with the text about giving. God does that kind of stuff to us, doesn't he? But that kind of sent Brittany and I on a journey, actually, of church planting and thinking through, how can we be a part of a church that is sensible to non-Christians and tries to take some of the religious tradition and expectation out of our worship, and we point people and we point one another to Jesus. And so as we go through the book of Matthew, I mean, that's my heart for our church, And by his grace, we'll get there, that we'll be a community pointing one another to Jesus as we study his scriptures. That's our goal. That's our hope. And as we do that, we're studying the book of Matthew. And this morning, we come to a passage on giving. 
And I'm like, I don't want to preach about giving because I don't want any people who may not be Christians or just jaded, hurt Christians to think that the pastor of the church wants you to give your money to the church so that he can have a salary. Like, that's what I've thought in my own life back in the day. And God has challenged me and worked me over on some of that. But just so you know, that's kind of where my heart is with this. And as I come into this text, I've wrestled with it, and I thought, what is Jesus trying to get through in this text? I mean, it's about giving. Joey read it. We're going to look at it again this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We're going to dig through it. But what is Jesus trying to get at? There's this, and what we need to be aware of is there's this entire cultural context in which Jesus is giving this teaching in. It's not a standalone teaching on giving or money. It's a, it's a paragraph, it's two paragraphs in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this entire teaching that he's giving to a specific group of people 2,000 years ago who have been following him and are learning from him the Old Testament law and kind of this new reality of what it means to have the Messiah. And so I'm going to summarize for you Jesus' teaching here and then we're going to walk through it. Here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus expects his needy followers to meet the needs of others and to combat hypocrisy and complacency by giving in secrecy. Jesus expects his needy followers to meet the needs of others and combat hypocrisy and complacency by giving in secrecy. And so we're just going to walk through this text, walk through this statement, and I hope that God will stir in our hearts why we are to give and how we should give and the glory of giving. The first point here, Jesus expects... That's the entire context of the Sermon on the Mount here. It's Jesus instructing his followers how they are to live. It's Jesus laying down some expectation. He's he's telling people and he's invited people to come and follow him, to be disciples of him, to to be fishers of men, that he will give them this new life purpose and invite them onto this great journey. And some people have left everything to follow him. And and Jesus is saying, if you are going to be my people... If you're going to follow me, here's some of the expectations that I have for you. And he goes through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, laying down those expectations. He's taught us that that we are to be people who are salt and light scattered into the world, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That we're to be people who don't harbor anger and bitterness, but instead forgive others when they wrong us. That we're to be a people who don't look at other people with lustful intent, but to, to... to surrender our hearts and our eyes and our hands to God and ask him to purify them and we're to live in purity. And we are to be people who honor their marriage vows and and fight to stay married regardless of the tensions in our marriage. And we are to be a people, this is all in Matthew chapter 5 if you want to look at it, we are to be people who let our yes be yes and our no be no. We are to be people who don't retaliate when we're wrong, but rather we extend grace and forgiveness. We are to love our enemies. We're not to stiff arm our enemies. Jesus' expectations of his followers. This morning, it's about money. What does Jesus expect you to do with the money that he's given you? Essentially, that's what it comes down to. What are Jesus' expectations for our money? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to understand this is what Jesus expects of his followers. And so as you continue to ask questions, as you continue to consider Christ, you need to consider whether or not you want to follow this man. Like, he, 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 Jesus, we believe at our church that Jesus is the king of the world, that he is in charge, that he is worthy of our worship, he is worthy of our submission, he is worthy of, of our praise, 
that he is the only one who has all authority to tell us what to do. And when we do what he tells us to do, life works best. That's what Christians believe and what Christians are leaning into. We want to follow Jesus and what he expects of us we want to do. But if you're not there yet, please don't feel pressure from our convictions. We want you to ask questions. We want you to observe. We want you to count the costs. Do you want to follow a man like this or not? And if you choose not to, that's, that's your choice. But we want you to know what Jesus expects of us and what he has for us. And that's what we're seeing here in the Sermon on the Mount. His expectations, his culture that, that he wants for his kingdom. And so as we do that, we see that I, I think it's important for us to note that everyone following Jesus is needy. So that means everyone in this room has needs. Some of us, they're physical, they're circumstantial, they're tangible, they, they relate to clothing or food or housing or, or paying our bills. Others, it's more internal, it's mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual. But what I want all of us to remember, this framework for all of us, is that we are all needy. Everybody who follows Jesus is needy. One of the phrases that Pastor Ben uses often, which I really like, is that we, are, we all have needs we're all needy and we're all needed. We all have something to give and we all need something in return. And so I think let's set this foundation here as we get into giving this morning that we all have needs. And I think we see that here in the text. If you flip back to Matthew chapter 4, look at Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 through 22. This is Jesus inviting fishermen, Peter, James, John, and Andrew to come and follow him. These fishermen were like middle to lower class laborers. They essentially worked day to day. They, they lived paycheck by paycheck. That's the, the cultural setting here in the scriptures. These fishermen were the type of people who didn't make enough money to have investments and to have savings and to have everything set up for themselves. They were people who lived essentially pay to, paycheck to paycheck or net full of fish by net full of fish. None of you probably collect netfuls of fish and trade that in for money today, right? Any of you professional fishermen? No, you like create websites or you teach kids in a school or you run a business. But, but essentially what it's saying is that these men are men who had needs. They had to trust God and depend on God for their daily needs to meet their needs. Middle to lower class working folk. They're following Jesus. Needy people. Next, if you continue in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, 23 and 24, it shows us the lower class, like the, the outcasts of society, the poorest of the poor. These are people with diseases. They are, they are paralyzed. They're epileptics. They are, they are possessed and oppressed by demons. These are the homeless people without a job. This is the lowest of the low. These are the circumstantially needy people all around them. Now, continue to consider the context of who's following Jesus with me. Matthew, the person who wrote this book. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors had plenty of money. He was, he was despised by general society because he ripped them off for his own income, but he had a place of prominence and authority in the Roman government. They gave him the, the ability to be able to tax people. And he would take money off the top and, and pad his own pockets with that money. So he had plenty of money. 
So he, he didn't have these physical, circumstantial needs for money, but certainly he had some spiritual brokenness and some life needs. And then if you consider Luke, Luke wrote the Gospel according to Luke, the book of Luke. He was a doctor. He had plenty of money. He didn't, he didn't have the physical, circumstantial needs that we often think about when we hear about a needy person. But, but he had a need for a savior. He had a need for acceptance, for approval, for a community to belong to. If we think about the Pharisees, flip back to Matthew chapter 6. The Pharisees who, who God is calling out here, the hypocrites. Just uh, look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 2 with me. It says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. So why, we're going to get more into this text in a minute, but, but stick with me in understanding our neediness here. Why does Jesus call the hypocrites out for seeking to be praised when they give, right? He says, don't be like them. Don't give to be praised. Well, if you're giving in order to be praised, you have a need, right? What is that need? That need is to be affirmed or approved by somebody else. So even the hypocrites, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus is calling out, they're needy people. Their, their need was more emotional, mental, or, or they, they had this need for affirmation, for approval, to, to be honored, to be respected. I think in this room, we all fit into some of those categories, do we not? Some of us have physical, financial, tangible needs. Others, are, we're, we're longing to fit in. We're longing to be accepted. You may have enough money that you don't know what to do with it. You can pay your bills just fine, but oh, how you long for a place of acceptance and approval and belonging. So let's keep in mind as we go into this passage that all of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you're needy. I think it's really good for our souls to be able to admit that and confess that, that I have needs that I cannot meet. I'm dependent on someone else to meet some of my needs. We are needy people, and Jesus expects needy people to meet the needs of others. Notice he doesn't let anyone off the hook here. He doesn't tell the, the poor, paralyzed, the, those following him who, who were told about in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4, the great crowds of those diseased, those pained, those oppressed by demons. He doesn't say, you guys get a free pass from meeting the needs of others because you're the needy ones, does he? These are the people following Jesus. And he seems to make this assumption that everybody following him is going to contribute to meeting other people's needs. We're all needy and we're all needed. We all have something to give. We all have something to contribute. We are all tasked with meeting the needs of others. So none of us can say that this passage applies to those who have so that they can give to those without. We are all without, and yet Jesus expects all of us to be people who would give, who would contribute, who would meet the needs of others. Here in the context of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to primarily Jewish people, people who understood the Old Testament. They operated in the Old Testament law and religion. And so that, that meant that they gave approximately 30% of their income. So the, the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament law and tradition, the way that they had it set up is that 
the Israelites would give 10% annually to the priests. So the priests would receive 10% of the people's income and they would use that to help organize corporate worship, to take care of the temple duties. And then the priests would also live off of that. That's kind of similar to how we give in our, in our church today. And we're not going to, we'll talk a little bit about 10% and how to give at our church and why to give at our church in just a little bit. But just so you understand the cultural background here, Jesus is speaking to people who this was their normal practice. Whether they were poor or rich, if they were good God followers, their practice was to give 10% to the, to the priestly order for the sake of corporate worship and for the priests to live off of. It's like our tithes and offerings here at church. That creates a church budget, which we function our ministries through. But in addition to that 10%, they were to give 10% to feasts. So the nation of Israel would gather together and have feasts with food and drink and celebration and praise and worship. And the people of Israel were to give 10% to that as well. So 10% plus 10% makes 20%, right? So they're annually giving 20%. And then every third year, they were called to give a 10% tithe. Tithe means a tenth, so they would give a tithe, a tenth to the priests, a tenth to the feasts, priests and feasts, and then they would give another tenth every three years to the poor. It was like this fund among Israel that would help minister to the poor and the needy above them, among them. So Jesus here is speaking to these people. They understand, and he sees this. He, verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He's assuming that there is a practice of righteousness. Righteousness means to do justice, to do right by others. And he's equating a portion of righteousness means to give away, to fulfill the tithe to the priests, to the feasts, and to the poor. So he's saying, this is, he, Jesus is implying, he's assuming that this is a practice that all of them did and knew. It's helpful for us to know that because that's not a practice that all of us do and know about. He's assuming that is a practice that they do. And then verse 2, he says, thus, when you give to the needy. See the assumption there? He assumes that his followers, that God's people are giving to the needy. He's assuming that they give the, every third year, they give 10% to the poor. That's the cultural, the biblical culture of how God's people use their money. They hold it with open hands. They meet the needs of others. They give to the priests, they give to the feasts, and they give to the poor. They would give, on average, 23% a year. 10% every year to the priests, 10% every year to the feasts, and then every third year an additional 10% to the poor. Let's look, at the, let's look at some scripture about this culture of giving in the Old Testament. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I want us to see God's heart for his people to meet the needs of others. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. The seventh year, the year of release, was called the year of jubilee, and that's when all debts were equalized, all debts were forgiven. And so what God is saying here is that if you see a brother in need, don't say, well, they can continue to suffer for another year because in, this, in the next year, everything's going to be equalized, so I don't need to concern myself with their needs right now. I'll just wait. Say, no, don't do that. If you see a brother in need, take care of your brother in need. 
The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hands to your brother to give the needy and to the poor in your land. You hear God's heart there for his people to care for the needs of others? And just so we know, we can't eradicate poverty. It's not going to happen. God even says here, there will never cease to be poor in the land because of the fallenness, the brokenness of man, because of our structures and our corporate greed and our personal greed, there's always going to be poor among us. But God is setting up a people. In the Old Testament, it was the Israelites, and now in the New Testament, it's all the followers of Jesus. He's setting up a people to be an outpost of goodness in the world that we would meet the needs of others, that, that when we see somebody in need, we would open up our hand and meet their needs. A couple more passages that show us the Old Testament context of giving. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Psalm 112, verses 1 and 9. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. See that? Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, trusts the Lord, believes the Lord, who delights in his commands. His commands is that anyone would give, that his followers would give and meet the needs of others. And so you delight in that command and then you live freely. You distribute your goods for the good of others. And then Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. What a beautiful promise. Like, God's got our back. If you see a need, I've put you there to meet that need, and I'll take care of you. When you see a need, your first thing to do shouldn't be to assess whether or not you can afford to meet the need. The first thing that you should do is say, God, have you made me aware of this need so that I could be the person who would meet that need? Not to calculate whether or not you can afford to. Trust God. He will, he will fill in whatever you need if you are his hands and feet to meet the need of others. That's Old Testament context. That's what Jesus is speaking into here. People who understood the different tithes and understood, at least they understood God's teaching and heart for generosity and his call for them to be those people. And then again here in Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4, Jesus is assuming that these people understood that. We can't make that same assumption. That's why I wanted to take a little bit of time and walk through some of that Old Testament context. Now we know that, and, and we see that Jesus continues to move us forward. He, he continues to push the point deeper. That's what he's doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, here was the Old Testament standard of giving, and I'm going to push it even deeper. I want you to be even more generous and more secret, secret about your giving than you've even understood, because I want my people to be a humble people who meet the needs of others for the sake of others, not for the pride of self. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, which kind of clues us into some of this giving talk as well. Jesus says, again to the scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember the word hypocrites? 
It's in Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4. He's calling out the religious elite, the religious proud, those who think, I'm going to do good things for God so that other people think good things about me. He calls them out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So tithe, they give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. That's because they had mint, dill, and cumin to trade in for currency. Probably not a lot of you have mint, dill, and cumin, right? You have a paycheck for the work that you do. They harvested mint and then would trade their mint in for money. And he's saying, you give a tenth of that. Give a tenth of the proceeds. And so what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 23 is he's saying the religious leaders, the religious elite, in Matthew chapter 6, they're giving for praise and approval of others. In Matthew chapter 23, they are giving out of a heart for wanting to fulfill the law so that they could gain their own righteousness. And he's saying that you should give, but even more importantly, you should care about the holistic needs of others. It doesn't have to do with a percentage. It doesn't have to do with the minutia of your giving. It has to do with the heart of generosity in my followers. See, I think that's a, it's an interesting note here in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, that, that Jesus actually upholds tithing. And I don't think the scriptures mandate tithing in the New Testament. This is about the closest verse that you can find in the New Testament that would command or that would instruct people to give a tenth of their income to gospel ministry. This is the closest one. It's Jesus says, care about the weightier matters of justice and mercy. You should have done these while also doing the other. So it seems like he's implying you should give a tenth or you should give the percentages from the Old Testament, but ultimately it's about the heart. And so the New Testament, I just want us to be clear on this as a church. We don't believe that the New Testament mandates you giving 10% of your income to the local church. Ironically, the people who I respect the most in my life, the godly examples that I look up to as I've gotten to know them, all of them do give 10% as a baseline. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's just because there's a principle in Scripture that that kind of runs throughout Scripture that a tenth, a tithe, a tenth is a good place to start. Um, so I would encourage you that if you want to be faithful with your money, if you want to give sacrificially, 10% might be a good starting point. I didn't do that as a single man, and then I got married, and my wife was like, you don't do that? Well, before we got married, she was like, what do you do with your money? Do you tithe? And I was like, no, I support compassion child, 30 bucks a month. It's great. I don't ever have to think about it. They get food, and I feel good about my giving. Anyone ever done something like that? And she was like, you're so unfaithful with your money. I can't marry you. You better grow up and give generously. And so then she helped me. Thank you, Brittany. She continues to help me. Side point, this isn't about giving 10%, but I do want us to notice there in Matthew 23, 23, that Jesus says, you should continue to give kind of, kind of a, a set number. You should consider these tithes that help God's church and God's community to function. But ultimately, the heart is, do you care about justice and mercy? If you can't afford to give 10%, or if you don't feel called to give 10%, don't get caught up on a number. Get caught up on the heart. Do I want to give generously to meet the needs of others? 
One more in the New Testament here. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. It's on page 849 in the Pew Bible if you want to flip there with me. Otherwise, it will be on the screen as well. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. This is Jesus teaching again. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will, they will receive the greater com- condemnation. So he's saying the religious elite, those who puff themselves up, those who do good works with the intent of wanting to be praised by others, Beware of them. He goes on to talk about giving. He says, and he sat down, at verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the what? The offering box. Oh, hey, that's, is that why we have offering boxes now instead of plates? No, it's not. That's a, that's a very small point. It doesn't even, however we give, whether that's online, in a plate, or in a box, that's superfluous. It doesn't matter. Sometimes people get caught up on that, like, well, I can't give online because it's not worshipful enough, or I can't slip it into a box because it's not worshipful enough, or a plate that comes by, that seems... That doesn't matter. That's, that's How you give doesn't matter. Like, is it more secret to place something in a plate as it comes by and the greeter's hovering over you, watching you? Or is it more secret to slip it in a box during communion? Or is it more secret to give online where no one sees it? That's not the point that Jesus is making. The point has to do with the heart. And look at what he's saying here. Many rich people, so he was sitting there watching people put their money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to him, said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who contributed to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she has had to live on. So the teaching of the New Testament here is taking it deeper from the Old Testament law, where you give 23% annually, you give to the priests, and you give to the feasts, and you give to the poor every third year. He's taking it deeper, and he's saying, actually, the heart of a, a kingdomly transformed follower of Jesus is to hold it all with open hands. It's to say, whatever God calls me to give, I will give it. If it's everything that I have to live on, I will give it to him, trusting that he will take care of my needs because his glory and the good of others is more important than my accumulation of stuff and wealth and things. Jesus is honoring the widow because she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had. She didn't give a calculated amount that she could afford. So Jesus is pushing it deeper, as he always does in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's about a heart of generosity. It's not about a calculated amount. And then look at Acts chapter 2, verse 45. This is the believers together after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit was sent. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See the picture of the church? This is Jesus' expectation of his people that all of us have needs and all of us are called to meet the needs of others. Just because you have needs doesn't mean you can sit on your hands and say, I'm here for other people to meet my needs. I'm a needy person. 
He's saying, regardless of whether your needs are physical, circumstantial, whether they're spiritual, emotional, I have put you into a community to meet the needs of others. Get your eyes off yourself and think about how can I serve others? How can I meet the needs of others? How can I give my money? How can I sell my stuff? How can I use my home? How can I use my car? How can I arrange my life in a way where I meet the needs of others? That's Jesus' expectation. And I want to encourage you, church, it's being done. I hear stories often about how community groups are blessing others. I heard a story about a community group recently who somebody in their group had an issue with their vehicle. It was like a $1,200 fix. So the community group decided to collect money among themselves and fix the car for that person. I heard another story about a community group in our church who, who there was a person in their group who couldn't afford rent for a month. So the community group pooled their money together and paid rent for that month for the person. I've heard of that happening with groceries, with medical bills. This is the church at work. Good job, church. Keep pressing into that. Keep doing that. And if you are a non-Christian observing the church, that's what you need to hear and see. That Jesus has called us into a community that we would care for one another and meet one another's needs. That's the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Let's come back to this statement. So he has expectations for us. We're all needy. He expects all of us needy people to meet the needs of others and then to combat hypocrisy and complacency. We all have a tendency towards hypocrisy and complacency. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6, he's calling out the religious leaders for being hypocritical. For giving for praise rather than giving from hearts of true desiring to see good done in others. But church, how often is that us? I mean, how hypocritical do we get when we see somebody else who has more or something different than us and, and we judge them like, I thought they were a Christian. I can't believe they drive that kind of car. They must, they must spend all their money on themselves. Well, actually, maybe they spend a lot less on their car um, percentage-wise than you do, but they just make a lot more. God's blessed them in a different way. Right? I mean, I, God worked me over in my hypocrisy when I once, I got, I got pretty judgmental towards some Christians and towards a church once who I made a judgment on how they were using their money. And then the pastor said to me, how are you using your money? I was like, okay, you're spending this much of your money on your building and this much of your money on your staff and only this much money on global missions. And he said, he said, if you want to play that game, how much of your money are you giving to global missions? And I was like, well, I like to go out to eat too much. I would rather spend money on going out to eat than global missions. And he challenged me on that, and I'm so grateful because it revealed in my heart my hypocrisy. And what I've found is oftentimes when people are really judgmental towards how other people use their money or how churches use their money, they actually are expecting other people to do something that they themselves aren't willing to do, to live generously and radically with their money. We tend towards hypocrisy, right? Like, we'll judge, we'll judge other Christians for how they use their money, but then we'll fail to really assess how often we go out to eat, how much we spend on entertainment. None of, none of that is wrong. If God's blessed you with the means to be able to go out to eat and to enjoy a vacation, do that. But, but be careful that you don't become hypocritical with how you use your money and judge how you give or what you give or what others do give or what others don't give. We all tend towards hypocrisy. And here Jesus is saying, be careful. And then don't give 
with trumpets. And don't give to get your name on a plaque. Like in the hospitals, you ever walk through a hospital and you see the different giving levels, like the gold club, the silver club, the bronze club? That's not how giving works in the church. If you're a person of great financial means, don't give a great financial gift expecting your name to show up on a pew with a reserved seat. That's not happening around here. And if it does, you can fire me and find a different pastor. And if you're a person of of small means, but you give it all away, and we hear, like, that was a sacrificial gift. You're the widow with two pennies, and you gave two pennies. We're going to put your name here on a pew, and you're going to be the poor widow with the great pew. It's not going to happen here. Because it's not about our recognition. It's not about us receiving praise or affirmation for others. It's about us, in a secret way, meeting the needs of others. We combat hypocrisy and complacency specifically by giving in secrecy. How do you combat complacency? By giving. In October, Mark did two sermons on money and kind of talked about the theology of money. And one of the phrases that he used was that um, your, your heart follows where you spend your money. So if you're complacent towards the poor, if you're complacent towards the needs of others around you, if you're complacent towards world missions, start giving your money there and then your heart will follow. If you're complacent about the things of God, put your money towards the things of God and then praise God by his grace in all likelihood your heart will be changed. You will begin to care. And so we combat hypocrisy and complacency by giving in secrecy. And and we give in secrecy so that we don't puff ourselves up. I love how Charles Spurgeon says it about this text. He says, The proud contemplation of your own generosity may tarnish all of your giving. If you're patting yourself on the back for your good gifts, you're in danger of tarnishing your giving and wrecking it. Keep your giving so secret that even you yourselves are hardly aware that you are doing anything at all praiseworthy. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now practically, you're going to know what you're doing, right? You have to put the money in. You have to write the check. You have to fill out the number online. He's saying, don't dwell on it. Don't puff yourself up saying, how great am I? I gave a bunch of money to the Lord and his work to the needs of those around me. God got a good deal when I signed up to follow him. That's not the heart of a Christian. It's, it's God, you've given me everything, and so I hold it all with open hands. Would you redistribute it as you see best for your glory, for the good of others, and for the advancement of your gospel? Three applications. Number one is pay attention to your RSI. Your RSI is your relational sphere of influence. That's the people that you do life with. Pay attention. If you see needs in your neighbors, needs in your family, needs in your friends, needs in your community group, consider and pray and think about how would God call me as an individual follower of Jesus to meet those needs? Do I have a friend who needs $100 to help them this month because they're under? Can I do that? If not, can I, can, I, can I reach out to some of my other friends and say, hey, I have a friend who has this need. Can we together meet that need? Community groups do this often. It's an amazing thing to watch. All of us need to pay attention to our relational spheres of influence and ask God, how would you disperse us to meet those needs? Secondly, give to the fellowship fund. The fellowship fund is a fund here that we use at church to meet the practical, tangible needs of others in both our church and our community. So you can use an envelope like this in the pew in front of you to write out a check or cash and and make a designation on there that it's for the fellowship fund. Or you can give online and make a designation for the fellowship fund. 
We use this as a church strictly to meet the tangible needs of others. We're running low in this fund right now because we've had the opportunity to give a ton of money away to people. We help people with counseling, dealing with past traumas. We've been able to help people with rent when they couldn't afford it. We've been able to help people get groceries, gas cards. This is one of the most fun things of my job when there's money there and somebody comes in and has a need and we pray with them and assess it and we say, hey, don't stress about that. We've got it covered. Let us pray for you. So you can do that. That's a tangible, practical way that we could fulfill Jesus' call here in Matthew chapter 6. And then lastly is to give to the Sheridan story. This thing stopped working. Oh, there we are. Give to the Sheridan story. Um, the Sheridan story is, let's play the video and then I'll explain what the Sheridan story is. This is Chloe. Chloe is in third grade and lives with her mom in South Minneapolis. Chloe loves to draw and paint. Her artwork covers the fridge at home. Chloe's mom works hard at her job, but it's still often a struggle for them to afford enough food. Thankfully, every weekend during the school year, Chloe receives a bag of food from the Sheridan story. It's discreetly placed in her locker while she's in class. Her mom says sometimes it's the only food in their house for the whole weekend. There are over 200,000 kids in Minnesota like Chloe that are facing food insecurity. The Sheridan story mobilizes thousands of volunteers to pack and distribute food to help close the weekend food gap by providing food when they can't receive meal programs from school. This coming school year, over 5,000 kids will receive food every weekend. You can join the fight against child hunger at thesheridanstory.org. So that's a picture of what the Sheridan story does. They are actively working in Peter Hobart Elementary School, which is four blocks north of us, our local neighborhood school. There are 40 kids that go home every weekend at the Sheridan story with bags of food in their backpack because three ladies from our church actually go every Friday and stuff bags of food into backpacks. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, ladies, for doing that. Um, and, and they've... The, the program, the Sheridan Story, has requested $2,400 from us as a community sponsor to help this program finish up for the rest of the year. They need to fund these 40 students getting those bags of food for the weekend over the rest of the school year, and that'll take $2,400. So I think we as a church should give them $2,400. You guys agree? Wouldn't that be a cool thing? Like, there's a need right in our own community, right down the street. And Jesus, and, and this isn't to pat ourselves on the back. Like, we're not going to sound a trumpet. Hey, Park Community Church is the sponsor. We are the people who gave the money because that's what Jesus is telling us not to do. But he's saying, meet the needs of others. And so we're aware of a need in our community. And so I'm requesting for us as a church to pool our money together and come up with 2400 bucks over the next couple weeks. You can give by designating that on an envelope, dropping that in the giving box, or doing it online. And we will then discreetly give that money to the Sheridan story so that those kids can have food over the weekend. Amen? What a cool thing. So I'm asking you, church, could, could you step up and help us with that? That would be an incredible way to practically apply this passage. Now, last thing, and then we'll be done. That's practical application, but we need to end with worship, right? So the gospel gain, the thing that we get from the gospel, the thing that we get from God is approval. That's one of the needs that we have, right, is approval, acceptance, fitting in. Look at how Jesus ends this passage. Verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do it secretly so that you don't, aren't puffed up with pride, so you're not getting praise from others. But verse 4, 
Do it so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The reality for us in the gospel is that we've been approved by God through Jesus Christ. We don't give to get God's acceptance. We don't give to, to, to get God's praise. I mean, here Jesus is saying, the Lord who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Well, we've been given the reward in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so now we give out of that reward. We don't, we don't give our things away. We don't meet the needs of others so that God would be pleased with us. God is pleased with us in Jesus. That's why we give and we get this great reward. It's relationship with God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are that you gave it all, that you gave everything. You held nothing back. You gave your life. You lived the perfect life that we can't. You died the sacrificial death that we deserve, and you overcame sin and death and the grave. I pray that you would stir in us the kind of hearts that would be transformed to follow your teaching, to love your commands, to meet the needs of others for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we respond to the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, there's communion stations, two here in the front and one in the back. You can visit the table anytime that you want to remember that in Jesus is your full reward. He's done everything in your place on your behalf. So let's worship him and remind one another of the gospel.